and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode we're going to have our own BMW Film Festival later on. But first, a callback to episode three where we announced that Netflix where we said that Netflix had announced a new series called Hyperdrive, which they were touting as the car equivalent of Ninja Warrior. I, as of about half an hour ago, have actually finished it, and I know who wins. But Marty, you're still on episode three at the moment? Yeah, I'm on episode three. Uh, Let's go back a little bit. Yesterday I put this on on my iPad in the kitchen while I was cooking dinner because I wanted to see what it was like. It's very glossy. The ad on Netflix is full of neon and cars and drifting and all sorts of stuff. And I was a bit unsure. And the first half of the first episode didn't really change my opinion at all. And in fact, my wife called to me from the living room saying, what earth are you watching? It sounds terrible. (laughs) Hyperdrive is as American as it gets. It's got some really cheesy voiceovers. It's got four presenters, sorry, three presenters, and then one token woman interviewing people in the pits and providing very little of any substance, which I feel really bad for because she might be a great sports reporter, but she's given nothing to work with. Um, One of those pundits is Rutledge Wood uh, from Top Gear USA. I loved Top Gear USA. I like Rutledge Wood. The other two are random sportscasters that appear to have been shipped in from football and I don't know who the Brit is, but he's just terrible. He's an ex UFC champion? He knows a lot about cars, clearly. Wait, no, that's wrong. He doesn't. He knows about punching people. (laughs) I don't know how that relates to this, but the, 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 the whole thing of the show is there's this gigantic factory set covered in neon that they set up various challenges and courses around there. It's kind of like Chris says, Ninja Warrior meets the dog agility bit in Crufts, <laughs> but for cars. Um, and they've got loads of drifters, uh, all amateur people coming along with their cars to take on this course. Um, it's timed. There are various obstacles. There's a there's a teeny bit of like super glossy kickstart about it for those who remember that if you're very <laughs> old and you come from the UK you might get that it's auto testing it's in it Britain is. yeah it's, it's auto testing it's done in car parks of church halls on a Sunday morning by blokes in cut down minis and in America they get 100 acres of the old Kodak factory in Rochester New York cover it in neon and Get a get a tyre sponsor as well, thank God, because it's just loud and brash and brilliant. And That's it's the thing. entertaining. <laughs> I got, you know, I thought, well, this is terrible. And I ultimately ended up sitting down to show my wife what it is that she'd been hearing from the kitchen. And we thought, oh, this is just, you know, tasteless crap. And yet we were still watching. And then the first episode ended on a cliffhanger, which meant we had to kind of move straight on to the next one, which Netflix is very good at, to see what happened. <laughs> and then you find yourself getting sucked in. And a lot of the competitors they've brought in have stories, in inverted commas. They've got, you know, a, a not a tragic backstory, but they've got an interesting struggle to get where they're going, or mm-hmm. they're very young, or they didn't have much money, or they're doing it because one of their friends used to be a driver with them and then died. 
some of the people don't get a backstory. They're generally the ones who are rubbish at driving or have a rubbish car <laughs> or have a rubbish car and are rubbish at driving. Um, because but, all of these are amateur drives as well. There's, yes, that's the thing. This isn't no a pro- big professional. Yeah, I found that quite interesting because when I first started watching, I thought, I really want someone like Tanner Faust to turn up in a, a bad wig and a stick on moustache and just smoke <laughs> everyone. I want to see what Ken Block would do to this course. Mm. But that's not the point. Um, although there, I want a bit of YouTube uh, behind-the-scenes content, I want them to get Ken Block on this because it is absolutely inspired by his Jim Carner series. It just oh, so happens to take place in a huge disused Kodak factory with lots of neon lights. It's really enjoyable, and it's surprisingly addictive. And yes, it's cheesy, and yes, it's American, and there's some very terrible voiceovers. Um, <laughs> but it's car content presented in a super glossy fashion with a big budget. Mm. Watch it. You know, If you keep watching it, Netflix might make more of this stuff, and I'm all for that. So, yeah, first impressions, actually surprisingly good with some reservations uh, we're going to keep watching uh, and we'll come back mm. to it in a future episode and find out what I thought of it uh, and whether the brilliantly named Fielding Shredder actually won <laughs> Fielding Shredder with his disintegrating car on just on that point on talking of Fielding Shredder he posted a YouTube video which is a Q&A of him answering 10 of the most popular questions he's had since Hyperdrive and it's really insightful it's really good to listen to and he says he's going to put more content up on his YouTube channel we'll put a link in the in the show notes two things that did stick out for me one they are keen to do a series two but it hasn't yet been commissioned and actually at the end of the final episode they show a link on screen to hyperdrivecasting.com so if you know anybody who wants to ship their car out to the US and drive very sideways that's the place to do it um, the other thing that he said, I've now forgotten, so this is going to ruin the continuity of the episode, but there we go. Um, <laughs> we should probably mention who Fielding Shredder is at this point. He was the first guy to do a run in the first episode. Mm. I'm fairly sure it's a fake name, but they assure us it's real. It's right up there with one of the great car names. With There's Max Venturi. Which is a great car name. Now we've got <laughs> Fielding Shredder, who could only be an amateur drifter. But it sounds like one of those fake names that you see in Need for Speed, your competitors' <laughs> names, or Gran Turismo or something like that. Or the old Colin McRae games where they give you rally names, that like Kinky Wankinen and the like. <laughs> because they couldn't use the real ones. I'm trying to think what the most British name you could call a racing driver here. I think Nigel Mansell is probably about as British as it gets. <laughs> I don't know. Some something double barreled. Just go back to yes. the nineteen twenties and look at what Bentley boys were called. <laughs> yes. That's very true. So Henley I... Fotherington Smythe in his blower <laughs> Bentley. I'd love to see that go around the hyperdrive course. Anyway, we have digressed. So one thing that did strike me as I was watching this, and I think that there is a rule that covers all automotive content. You and I have texted back and forth on this even going back to the Evo days and and beyond. If you are watching something or you're reading something and you think to yourself, I want to do that, I want that car, I want that thing, it's the reason why there are so many Eleanors, there are so many slate grey 911s just like Steve McQueen. I was watching this going, I wonder what car I would build to do this. I wonder what it would look like. I wonder, what would I need to do? Do I need to change the control arms? Do I need to fit a hydraulic handbrake? How would I put a manual gearbox into an AMG C63? And I think that is the rule for the Auto Movie Podcast. 
if you watch something and you are so engaged with it that you want that car at the end of it, that's a massive thumbs up. And one of the things with hyperdrive is that they don't get into the weeds of the car. It's all quite surfacey. And it's it's kind of referenced occasionally, but they don't really talk about the cars in any great sense. And that is to their credit because it all comes down to the driving. But if my lottery numbers come up anytime soon, I'm going to ruin a C63, turning it into a drift car and then smearing it all over whatever's left of Rockingham Speedway in the process. I'm pretty sure we know someone who says the C63 is already a drift car. <laughs> Everybody who's ever driven one. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. But I, I want one of those handbrakes that's like four foot tall and has a knuckle duster on the top of it, which seems to be the... the <laughs> Hydraulic fly-off handbrake, yeah. And all of that good stuff. Shifting gears hugely. Some of you may have seen a new magazine come out for historic motoring called Magneto, and in the latest edition, there is a piece of uh, behind-the-scenes writing for the Italian job, the original uh, 50-year-old um, famous film with Minis and Michael Caine and you're only supposed to blow the, blow the bloody doors off. What I found out, aside from the fact that all the traffic jams were actually done for real by the production crew, uh, the Fiat family wanted them to all drive 500s and were offering the producers wealth and Ferraris and all sorts. The guy who wrote the article, and it's well worth a read if you can find a copy of the magazine, has also written a book. It's available through porterpress.co.uk and uh, his name is Matthew Field and he's written basically the definitive behind-the-scenes look at how the Italian job was made. Um, it's a film that I love. It's a film that will certainly come up in a later episode. If you do like the film, if you have an interest in the film, go and find the uh, find Magneto magazine and go and check out porterpress.co.uk. I do like the film, but I don't love it. And you know why? Because I like the second bit with the cars in it, and I don't like the first bit with Noel Coward in it. Do you like the bit where Michael Caine goes and picks up is it an Aston Martin? Uh, no, you see, when I'm watching this movie, when it's on TV at Christmas or whenever, I'm just waiting for it to get to the chase. I'm waiting for them to be in the sewers. I'm waiting for them to do the famous mini stuff on the roofs of buildings. I'm waiting for them to get those minis into the bus. And then I'm watching the bus and I'm willing it to somehow make that turn. <laughs> I've seen the movie tens of times not hundreds maybe but I've seen the movie an awful lot and every time I'm sitting there going go on go on or slow down slow down or you'll fall off <laughs> it's never worked so far but man, I'll keep watching there is that scene and I'm trying desperately to remember what it is where he's in the garage and he's telling the very um, posh bloke who runs it uh, that he's been off shooting tigers in Africa and it always reminds me of the Roger scene from Gone in 60 Seconds where uh, Nick Cage sort of poshes up and goes into the Ferrari dealership. And I, I wonder if there was ever a link. Speaking of older films, we had... Um, that was a seamless link. Seamless. I, what can I say? We're, we're five episodes in now. I'm like a pro. Joe Tanner reached out to us on Twitter. Uh, he's, he's there on... He's at Stuff About Cars. And he wrote a great thread visiting locations for a film called Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry which was a new one on me, but it's a very interesting thread. And he suggested a number of films that we might be interested in featuring on a future episode. They were Vanishing Point, Eat My Dust, the original Gone in 60 Seconds, 
and the French Connection, which the French Connection is definitely on my list. Yeah, I think the original Gone in 60 Seconds would go really well with the new one, just as a, a look at what they didn't do. They're, not, they're, they're in no way alike. You really like the remake Gone in 60 Seconds. I do. <clears throat> I have many amusing and mean things to say about the Gone in 60 Seconds remake. I've never seen the original. I'm presuming that there is less woodworking involved in it. Oh, we can, we, we can but hope. If William Hartnell turns up halfway through, I will be deeply impressed. <laughs> ah, well, let's move on to the main subject of the, the podcast, our BMW Film Festival. Chris. So back in 2001, BMW, to try and build the brand, created a series of short films, rather they commissioned a series of short films to be made by some of the best directors and producers in Hollywood and they gave them a big budget to do so. These films are all between about seven and ten minutes long, but they are made by people like John Woo, Guy Ritchie, um, Tony Scott did one. We'll go through them all in a bit more detail. And they are all around the premise of The Driver. The series is called The Hire, and Marty, tell us about the uh, first season. So the first season was... Released in 2001, uh, and at the time I can remember seeing an advert in a magazine, I think, or possibly um, on another website, and going to bmwfilms.com, super excited to see this because these were released online only in a time where there was no YouTube, there was no Vimeo. You were downloading a QuickTime movie file to your computer and playing it, and this was pretty groundbreaking. Uh, the movies were all very, very low resolution. Um, I fired up my original copies to, to watch them for this podcast, and they look like postage stamp size video on a big monitor these days. Um, even the DVD that I bought, you put it into a, a, a Blu-ray player now, and it just gives up at upscaling and shows you a sort of slightly bigger than a postage stamp size thing in front of your big television. So they were shot expressly for online. They're all around five minutes or so to keep the file size down because streaming just wasn't a thing back then. They did five movies, five different directors, five different BMWs, um, and I'm going to choose a couple of my favourites from season one, the first of which is called Star. This has uh, the BMW E39 M5, my favourite of all BMWs. I love the E39 M5. We've talked about this before. I'm going to mention it again. It's just brilliant. <laughs> I want one. I can't think of a reason why I need one, but there you go. And it's directed by Guy Ritchie. Now, Guy Ritchie was coming off the success of Lockstock and Snatch, and so this is him at his most Guy Ritchie. It's got a voiceover. It's got freeze frames. It's got whip pans. It's got all the sort of camera trickery you come to expect from Guy Ritchie. It's a sort of slightly edgy, funny story about a driver who is chosen by a spoiled and shallow celebrity singer to drive her to a venue. Um, her managers hired the driver, played by Clive Owen, to teach the celebrity a lesson because she's such a cow. Um, <laughs> effectively, she's escaping her handlers who were driving around in the big SUV that she was supposed to go to the venue in. She's in the back of the driver's M5, and she's so rude to him, he just decides to give it the bootful and throws this car around the city, drifting sideways, doing huge jumps, doing handbrake turns, effectively trying to evade, in inverted commas, the pursuers, but actually just having a grand old time. Meanwhile, in the back of the car, this singer is being thrown around like crazy. 
I should mention, the singer's played by Madonna, who I think at the time was either married to or dating Guy Ritchie. So, again, big, big names in here. And she's game for a laugh. She's not the greatest actress, but she's absolutely game for this. She's, she throws herself into the role. And this has got some of my favourite car work of all of the BMW short films. They've got rig shots with the car drifting so you can see the rear wheels locking as they pull the handbrake. You can see the massive oversteer as they're going into corners. It's got some kind of fixed um, video game-like camera angle where they've attached a rig to the car as it's driving around. So the cars lock in position in the shot and the background's moving around it, but somehow they've managed to paint out the rig that's hot connected to the car. I don't quite know how they've done that, CG I'm guessing, but it looks incredible. It's very video gamey, but it looks really cool. Um, and then it has my single favourite drift shot of all time where the driver throws the M5 into this massive right hand drift and he just grabs the wheel spins it and then flicks his hands up and does a little ole clicks his fingers <laughs> over his right shoulder while the steering wheel is going crazy and the car's doing an enormous drift it looks incredible i've no idea if it's actually possible to do that and i seem to remember ages and ages ago formerly top gear formerly currently fifth gear presenter tiff nadell watching this video and thinking, I wonder if that's possible. But I don't think anyone's ever tried it. I'd love to see if it's possible or whether it's just movie trickery and it's a fake steering wheel. Because <laughs> it looks cool as hell. It really does. There's a surprise, slightly amusing ending to start, but it's just the sheer brash, flashy fun of this. It tells a, a, a funny story in five minutes of huge car action it makes the e39 m5 look even cooler than it already is and it's a great way into this series it's the it's slightly superficial and shallow and it does use a slightly played out tune in the form of blur's song 2 great song but i think even mm -hmm. then that had started to appear on a lot of adverts and and was possibly a bit overused by that point but really really good intro into the bmw films and then the second one i'm going to highlight is far more meditative far slower it's called the follow and this has got the BMW Z3 3.0-litre. Not my favourite BMW, I must admit. I don't like the Z3. It's a bit too sort of soft and soap bar-y, but <laughs> it works really well for the story. This is the exact opposite of the star. This is loads of long-held shots. It's got very little in the way of car driving sounds. They've dropped all the Foley noises out, and they've just put a lovely gentle bit of music over the top. Uh, the story for Follow is that the driver is hired by a nervous movie manager to spy on a paranoid actor's wife. The actor is played by Mickey Rourke, again a big name. Um, the driver's describing how to follow someone. It's done in a voiceover and he's giving you advice on how to tail somebody in a car and the advice is all really good what you see on the screen is not good because he's basically driving about six feet off of her <laughs> rear bumper and doing everything that she does and she notices him a lot and tries to get away um, so <laughs> that bit doesn't quite work not great not great the, the tone of this is really nice it's far more slowed down there's lots of long held shots the actors are placed very carefully in the frame there's virtually no kind of car chasey action type stuff in here mm. um, I won't give away the story again a really well told um, well shot little vignette really and I, I, I don't know I go back and forth I really really love Star but actually mm. I think the, the standout of all of the five films in the first season is probably The Follow so yeah that's those are my two from mm. the first season I think what's really interesting about the first season is that 
every filmmaker has been given license to do what they do and to do what they want to in the way that they do it. So as you watch them, things like uh, Chosen, which is directed by Ang Lee, has a, has a bit of a um, crouching tiger, hidden dragon kind of feeling to it because he said that he was all about the choreography of the cars and how the cars move and dance and interplay and all this sort of thing. Then you get one of my... I was going to say favourites, but it's not... Favourite's the wrong word. The one that kind of struck me and really stuck with me was the last one in season one called Powder Keg. It was filmed in Mexico by a Mexican filmmaker called Alejandro Inaritu. Stars Stellan Skarsgård as a war photographer, but it opens and immediately it, you, you notice that it's shot possibly on VHS. It's gritty, the colours are blown out in places, you're low in the weeds, and you're in an active war zone. The driver is now driving a BMW X5, which I still think is actually possibly one of the best-looking uh, SUVs that BMW's I like that generation made. of X5. I do mm. like it. It's before things like the X6 and the X4 and the X3 and the X1 and all that other crap came <laughs> along. There's something quite pure about that first X5, mm. and it was the first really good-looking SUV, not kind of discounting the Range Rover, because I don't think it really competes against that. But no. it looks it great. It also looks fantastic when they stick a Le Mans V12 under the bonnet and put well, that's BBS another. wheels on it. <laughs> yeah, that's another story. I knew you were thinking of that. I'm, I'm that obvious. Um, but the one of the things that with this film is that you've only got seven minutes or so to tell a story. And we don't really ever learn anything about the backstory of the driver. But in this case, you have to learn who the photographer is, what he wants to do. The filmmakers were given license, I think, to do a lot of their own scripts. And if you look through the credits, there isn't, I don't think, a common writer amongst many of them. I think there's one writer who did two of them. So Stellan Skarsgård says things that are nominally anti-American, even though even though um, BMW America were the, the backers of this. And it builds suspense and it tells a story of trying to get this photographer out of the country and then you see his mother later on in the in the episode as well and it's it tells a very succinct story very well from a very different point of view from a lot of the other films and it's it, it's the one that kind of burrowed into my brain the most and stuck with me and i think one of the great things about this series is that you can watch it in any order you want, they're, they're completely episodic. There's no overarching story to them. But each one, like Martin was saying, the Guy Ritchie one is very Guy Ritchie. The Ang Lee one is very Ang Lee. The, um, the powder keg, the one I just described, looks completely different. The, the writing is different. The dialogue is different. The, the tone and the tempo of it is different. But they all tell their own story in their own way. So it's a really interesting thing just to sort of dip into to, to watch them all. And all of these films actually only run to 64 minutes total, even though there's, there's nine films that we're talking about. You can get through them all in an hour. So after the first series of five, they were a big success, great response from the public. And so BMW commissioned another three in 2002. 
which in this case didn't focus on different cars. They all used the then new Z4 3-litre. Slightly different production company this time. The first series were produced by David Fincher's anonymous content production company. And you got that very slightly Fincher-esque, very slightly subversive, um, slightly gritty feel. The credits felt like they could easily have been in front of one of Fincher's movies. The second season was produced by Ridley and Tony Scott's company, and there's a degree more Hollywood gloss to all of these movies, and I think a little less freedom. They're a little more mm. shallow. They're a little more action-y, less meditative. There's nothing like The Follow in season two. There are some good movies. I really like uh, Ticker, which is directed by Joe Carnahan, who's an action movie director. He's done a bunch of great movies that I really enjoy. I really like Smoking Aces by him. He's done Narc. It stars Don Cheadle as a wounded man carrying a mysterious briefcase being driven by the driver whilst under helicopter attack. So instantly the action is ratcheted right up from the first one and you're dropped in media res straight into this chase. During the attack by the helicopter, this mysterious briefcase gets struck by a bullet, which causes a display on it to start a countdown clock. And the driver understandably gets freaked out because this could easily be a bomb, and he's determined to find out from his passenger what's in the briefcase. I'm not going to spoil it because it's a it's a pretty neat little story, and uh, it's got a, a really lovely end. But this one is full of action. It's got helicopters. It's got masses of slightly dodgy CG bullet hits. It's got, again, some, some great practical driving. The Z4 3-litre is not the full fat um, Z4M with the M3 engine in it, but it's still a quick car. They've recorded it. It sounds good, and they use it in, a, in quite an interesting way. It gets mucky and dirty off-road, and the ending to this, I think, is what really sells this. There's there's a little bit of sag in the middle uh, where they're arguing to and fro about what's in the box. Sorry, what's in the briefcase. But the ending has got cameos by some really big actors. It's got Ray Liotta, Robert Patrick. It's got um, Dennis Haysbert. Yeah, he's in it just for a fraction of a second. Very recognisable voice. And these are all big stars. Robert Patrick's the freaking T-1000. And he appears <laughs> as just some kind of security agent for two shots. But it really sells the world of this. And again, you know, this is a seven-minute thing. You've got to tell a story in broad strokes with little hints here and there. And this works really well for that. The second one uh, is directed by John Woo, and much like Guy Ritchie's star, this is a very John Woo star production. You've got slow-mo bullets hitting the ground. He's got a very John Woo-like score, at least John Woo from his Hollywood days. Um, much like the score for Broken Arrow, it's very epic with big Hans Zimmery synths going on. Uh, and this is the story of the driver being hired by the FBI to help defuse a hostage situation. So he's a little more involved this time, less the sort of aloof, competent driver. He's kind of being pulled into the scenario here. There's an employee who's kidnapped a CEO and has hidden her and is demanding a very specific sum of money for her release. And the driver gets involved to rescue her and deliver the money. Again, I won't go into spoilers. This one's very cool. There's a neat little twist at the end. A lot of these have a little twist at the end. I think it must be a stylistic mm. thing that works for a short story to just give you a little flip at the end. But it's it's got a really fun car chase as he's trying to locate the hostage uh, and a really cool stunt on one of those splitting bridges over a river where the, the, the bridges go up on either side and split the roadway in half. And he's trying to drive his car up there and it skids to a halt right on the very edge of the bridge, which looks amazingly cool because they did it for real using a special rig that meant that the car would never go off the edge but was in fact hinged and controlled in such a way that they could get it right to the very edge and the driver could drive it but with complete 
safety that he wouldn't fall off so you get this iconic shot of the car drifting sideways right up to the very last inch of the bridge and you can see the water underneath that looks so cool and it's the kind of thing that you have to do practically it just wouldn't work if you CG'd it it would look terrible so yeah again they're probably slightly more commercial there's a bit more of BMW logos and an over pushing of the car in the second series the first series the cars uh, they're characters in it because they're different cars and they're just being used as a tool, as a device. There's no lingering shots of the M5 badge on the back in, <laughs> in Star or anything. Here, there's a little bit more of that. They open and close in some instances with the, the wheels spinning with the BMW propeller on there. There's a bit more of that, but they're still really good. Still, the, first, the first two of that second series are really good. The third mm-hmm. one, directed by Tony Scott himself and starring James Brown, is less good. Yes. Yeah, it it's it's a really good premise. I have to say, of all the films, this is probably the one where I'm not sad. I'm I'm not upset. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yeah. But essentially, the the story goes that the driver is taking James Brown to go and meet the devil and renegotiate the deal that brought him fame and fortune, which. I love. I think that's a brilliant concept. It's, it's that high pitch. It's it's that twist on the Robert Johnson blues man Robert sold Johnson. his soul to to get all his skills on the guitar. Yeah, but then the film itself just descends into. I always want to say it's slightly sort of fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Gary Oldman has this really weird character in the middle of it, which I just don't understand, and it feels a bit like. They were only commissioned to do three films. They did two solid ones, and they kind of looked and went, right, well, we've got Marilyn Manson on board, so we need to get him in somewhere, and we've got Danny Trejo, and we've got this location that we want to use. And like all of these as well, I think this one in particular, because it's shot out in the desert for a lot of it, and sort of around Las Vegas, it has that real Top Gun, Golden Hour, everything's orange and saturated and bright... And it just doesn't really... It just doesn't quite round out as well as the other ones do. And even the the twist at the end isn't really that much of a twist. It's kind of a, huh, and that's that's it. And I think this, this is a real shame because while for me the first season was all about individuality and creativity and about giving the filmmakers carte blanche, this one feels a lot more like we want you, filmmaker, to go and make a Tony Scott film. And even Tony Scott couldn't make a Tony Scott film very well in in the uh, in Beat the Devil. They they all just lack that bit of individuality, that bit of lack of cohesion actually, almost as a positive thing. So it's what the can second you say? season. Well, the second season is good and it's the certainly the first two we highlighted are solid worth watching mm. they never quite hit the heights of the first one and possibly that's because of the switch of production company and the slightly more Hollywood gloss mm. um, we don't know it could be that BMW went that's great but can you push the cars a bit more we've no idea what we can say is that the higher series was a landmark in advertising it's the first time this was ever attempted the, the concept of a, a promo film about a car that isn't like a car ad no mm. Peugeot's driving past fields on fire here for no apparent reason. <laughs> this was 
telling a story that just happens to have a car in it. And, and some of these films could easily have been just a section of a much larger feature length film it just dropped in and apropos of nothing it just happens to have a bmw in it and that's what i really liked about that first series um nobody's really gone for this again no one's tried to do it i know that uh i can't remember when but mercedes-benz did a seven or eight minute short called lucky star which was shown in cinemas before movies. And I remember seeing it and thinking, this is amazing. It's like an amazing trailer. I think it's the CL500 they were pushing. And it's got uh, Benicio Del Toro, who stars as a man who is always right. He's always right about his trades. He's always right about when traffic lights are going to change. He knows the exact time to try and get away from people who are chasing him. It's a brilliant high concept. Um, Directed by Michael Mann. So they were following that BMW film's pattern of getting a famous Hollywood director to do it. And as a trailer for a upcoming movie, it's fantastic. And there were rumours that they were going to do a feature film of it that never surfaced, probably because the concept wouldn't stretch and they could never make it work. But that's the only other one I can really think of that tried to tell a story about a man driving a car and not really just push the car all the time. I don't think that anyone's done it ever since, but I know that these higher films did actually have a significant effect on BMW's bottom line. They, they mm. Sales were up 17% in the years after this. They were aiming for 2 million views and they got yep. like 10 times that amount. Which More than that, it was 45 million views by the 45 end of 2000. In the age before YouTube, before YouTube had even thought of, <laughs> 45 million views is staggering. So a huge success. And mm. I think it probably changed the way car ads were shot. And I know we don't really get the same kind of thing for car ads these days because there's so many rules about not showing cars being, in inverted commas, out of control, which kind of spoils all the fun. Um, although I will say, honourable mention to Audi for getting around that with their R8 V10 adverts a couple of years ago, where they just showed the car having the nuts revved of it. Oh, and on the, the dyno. On the dyno with the cats glowing yes. red and, you know, crackling on the downshifts. That's an astonishing advert, much shorter uh, and a brilliant way of getting around these horrible nanny state <laughs> rules about what you can do in a car ad these days. But there is one more film in the higher mm. series that was done 15 years after the season two, uh, which you're going to talk about, right? Yeah. So this was a film called The Escape, and it was written and directed by Neil Blomkamp, who at the time had just come off doing District 9 uh, and doing Chappie as well. Both films that have at their centre questions about technology and about society and the ethical and moral dilemmas of those. And this film very much carries on in that same vein. So it's a genetics laboratory gets raided by the FBI and one of the human clones that have been created there is smuggled out and it's the driver's job to take them to a location. And in the course of him driving her, you learn about how they were created, who did it, the fact that they have shortened lifespans, that she's the only one of the five left. And this moral question and narrative starts to emerge, and then it becomes an action film. So all that gets put to one side. They're on a deserted highway, there's a helicopter, there's a gunfight. At one point, a lorry jackknifes, and then a BMW pulls a helicopter out of the sky, 
<laughs> sure, that happens. Although there is precedent. I'm pretty sure one of the diehards had Bruce Willis using a car to knock a helicopter out of the sky. So, yeah, it's possible. Well, true, true. If John McClane can do it, anyone can. <laughs> but then once he's he's got this helicopter and he drives away from the bad guy, it then picks up that moral and ethical tale again. And the driver has to make a decision about what he's going to do with this girl. This is the longest of all of the films. So this is about 15 minutes or so. And it feels like a 10-minute film with a five-minute action sequence crowbarred into the middle. It is one of the ones that, that I do like because it sets up very quickly and very easily this huge world, this huge concept. And a lot of it is just done in, in dialogue. And there's a there's a stupid film which I think we will probably put in the show notes, but we will have to put a, a very big uh, NSFW next to it, which was a film Kevin Smith did after Clerks, or maybe for a late-night TV show, called The Flying Car. And it's two characters sat in a traffic jam having a conversation. I, I love it. And that's kind of what this film is. Except they had to put a helicopter and a gunfight and a jetknife lorry and an empty highway into the middle of it to show off uh, the 5 series, the G... G30. G30. We're not sure what it is. We can't find online what the car actually is. We think it's the 540, but then, hey, if you're going to do it, do it with a hot one. I see it, not going to do it with a 520D. (laughs) Photocopier salesman special. This is the the driver who sits at home and carefully chooses a car for his commute. And then you just (laughs) see five minutes of him driving into the middle of Epsom, having a meeting, and then driving home, having a coffee on the way back. There's a little Um, lipstick cam on the miles per gallon. It's always above above 40. And then it cuts to a shot of him looking smug and satisfied. (laughs) That would be fantastic. Actually, there's a question This is why they didn't ask us to make these movies. It was their loss, frankly. Um, if you were a big BMW bigwig now and you were doing another series of The Hire or something similar, which filmmakers would you go after? Oh, that's a tricky one. I think Neil Blomkamp's a really good choice because he does these kind of short films anyway, but they've already had him. Uh, the Russo Brothers. They directed uh, from the second Captain America movie, the most recent Avengers movies, uh, because... The uh, second Captain America movie, Winter Soldier, has got some really gritty action sequences in it, and I think they could really sell a gritty action thing with cars in it. That's one choice I could pick up. Um, Who else is great at action? Edgar Wright. I mean, that's the the absolute most obvious choice, and he's kind of done it already in making Baby Driver, which we are going to cover in the next episode of the Automotive Podcast. But yeah, he'd make a great one of these. And it would probably be very funny and subversive and would almost certainly have lots of whip cans. Sorry. <laughs> would almost certainly have lots of whip pans and absolutely on point cuts. Yeah, an on point soundtrack. There, there is there is a moment in all of these films, or certainly the first series, where at the end, given that these are films about uh, smuggling children, about people getting shot, driving at high speed, drifting, all sorts of, of, of things... 
it says at the end, BMW USA says always wear your seatbelt. And I can imagine <laughs> yeah, that Edgar will help Wright. you. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine Edgar Wright doing that thing. It's like fast cut of door closing, fast cl- fast cut of buckle going into thing. Fast yes, cut like of, six uh, six angles on the on the seatbelt being done. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah, click. Yes, absolutely. I think the problem with that is yes, I could pick the directors to do it. Could I pick the cars from the current BMW range? The thing I love about the hire is it's my favourite segment of BMWs. It's the it's the era of the E46 M3, which they didn't include for reasons I don't understand. But, you know, E39 M5, the new X5. It's got the E38 7 Series, which is a great classic-looking 7 Series. Oh, beautiful. Lovely car. And if I look at the current BMW design language, I mean, come back, Chris Bangle, all is forgiven. Bring back your flame <laughs> servicing. Because what's going on with these gopping front ends on these horrible 2 Series? Yeah, so if you were to do it, you'd be saddled with some really ugly cars to sell. See, I think the two that, that jump out at me, I think if you got Richard Linkletter to do a film, he would take 20 years to do it, or he would take the entire BMW catalogue and show all of them from, you know, a 2002, uh, an E36 Evo, the 7 Series, an 850i. He'd somehow get all of them into seven minutes. The first part having... of that movie would be great. The first part yeah. would be fantastic. Get a 1M in there and an M1 yes. and an E30 M3, the um, Roberto Ruaglia edition. Yes, all of those. And, but just get Richard Linkletter to do it over a decade and have like a child grow up with a 2002 and, I don't know, end up driving Steve Soper's touring car or something. Also, Wes Anderson with an X7. I think he would appreciate the symmetry of the grille and the big crystal gear knob. But the X7 is like the, the Audi Q7. It's just massive and ugly and yes. it doesn't fit into car parking spaces. And it's for people... Just it's for horrible people. Or you could have the X7 and do a like a, a recreation of Jewel. So all you see is the <laughs> you're driving like, along in like a normal BMW, and then you look in your mirror, and it's just <laughs> filled with this massive X7 being driven by a bell end on the motorway, driving six microns away from your rear bumper. <laughs> all you can see is the grill. That's it. Just fills <laughs> the entire rearview mirror. That's the problem with all current BMWs. Is that is all you can see is the grill. Well, that's true. But there you go. Uh, that's the BMW Hire series, which, for all that we've taken the Mickey and we've maybe been down on a couple of them, is absolutely worth seeking out as landmark setting movies. And like Chris says, they're all so short that you can watch the entire lot in an hour. Uh, we'd be fascinated to know what your favourites are. Um, we've given you ours, but uh, you know, hit us up and let us know what your favourites from the series are. And speaking of other things we've been watching this week, Marty, what have you been watching on YouTube? Well, I I got two videos lined up with BMWs in to keep the theme on the BMW tip. Uh, I got the BMW M3 GTR Nürburgring lap with Hans-Rachim Stuck, uh, which is from 2004-2005 in the E46 BMW M3 GTR, which was a bit of a cheaty homologation special that BMW did. Um, it had a V8 when the E46 M3 had a straight six in it. It dominated all, and then they had to make some homologation ones and sell them to the public for the rules. So they did... Um, um, this is the race car doing what was then a record-setting lap around the Nürburgring, and then uh, Stuckey's done some commentary over the top, which is fabulous commentary as he describes him nailing it past little minis and all sorts of other stuff. There's also a non-commentary lap there. But yesterday, 
Bugatti dropped an atom bomb of a video. The Bugatti Chiron hitting 300 miles an hour. It's a pretty rough and ready video. It's basically a few on boards and some slight exterior shots and the GPS track of it hitting 300 miles an hour. Then the stock Chiron is limited to 261. So this one is slightly modified by Dallara uh, and Bugatti. It's got a really kick-ass rear end on it. Go and find the pictures of it. It's got this kind of shotgun stacked exhausts either side looks brilliant roll cage and one andy wallace at the wheel he of the record setting run in the mclaren f1 240.1 miles an hour it's done at the only place you can do these kind of speeds in an automobile uh the vw test facility to erilessine and they hit 304 point something miles an hour in a road car it's bonkers and to make that even more of a mic drop Today, they announced that that's it. They're setting no more records. They're out of the record-setting game. They've hit 300 miles an hour, and they're not going to do this anymore. They're going to focus on other things. Blimey. That's big. So watch the video. It's a very short video, um, but it's worth seeing to see the, the moment it hits 300 miles an hour because the speedo hangs at 299 for several beats longer than you think because presumably at that kind of speed the forces required to shove the air out of the way and get that extra mile per hour are pretty pretty strong. I think it's worth noting as well, actually at the lower speeds as well, the way it just gallops through to 20, to 30, to 40, it's just astonishing. And obviously you're waiting for that big number. but Yeah, it seems to only slow down when it gets to 280, 290, and then you know the massive drag starts to uh, take effect. But it does it, and... It's slightly tweaked. It's not a production model. Um, Yet. But I imagine, yeah, they'll probably do it, although I'm pretty sure the ones they sell to customers will not be rated for 300 miles an hour. (laughs) Some very, very trick tyres from Michelin on that. But uh, worth checking out to see what could be the only car to hit 300 miles an hour for a little while. You know the Cup R tyres that some cars have been using to set records on the Nürburgring and things like that? Yep. The Manti... um, GT2 RS uses them. I was watching a YouTube video of a guy who had them fitted to his GT2 RS, I think. And this wasn't a factory driver in like that. It was a guy who just took his GT2 on track. He said he got five laps of the Nürburgring out of them before they had to be changed. They're basically qualifying tyres, aren't they? They're, they're, yeah. a cut, they're a cut slick by any other name. They're built to set records. Um, very much like the tyres that are on this Bugatti were built specifically for this record and the reason it's taken Bugatti so long to go for this is they didn't know if the tyre technology they didn't know if the tyre technology existed Mm. to put up with the loads on the tyre at 300 miles an hour one of the interesting things I read was that you have these steel bands that are inside the tyre that that sort of form inside the carcass and in some instances, these bands, which are laid alongside one another, can touch very slightly when the tyre's being made. That's fine at normal speeds, but at this kind of speed, you get friction. Friction means heat. Heat means the tyre oh, wow. blisters and then delaminates. So one of the challenges they've faced in making these tyres is to make sure that that doesn't happen. So they have to x-ray each tyre? And... I don't know. I, there, there is Blimey. hopefully a behind-the-scenes documentary on how they did this, because it's there's some fascinating stuff if you're proper nerdy like we are <laughs> yes we are not afraid to be nerdy as one of our initial bits of feedback came back and <laughs> entirely true and this is just how we talk to each other all the time yeah speaking of fast laps 
speaking of the Nurburgring, no less, I have to thank Alan Bradley from the Motoring Podcast, who last week uh, highlighted an article in Car Magazine about the interestingly pronounced uh, Roof Automotive Company, who specialise in very, very, very fast Porsches. And he mentioned the video that always leaps to my mind whenever you talk about Roof, which is the fascination video of Stefan Roser in a 930 Turbo Yellowbird modified monster carrying his testicles in a wheelbarrow and setting just an astonishing lap. And it's worth pointing out for those who aren't as well versed in, in the Nürburgring and, and its history, there are two things to note in this video. One, it is now about 20 years old, and the track has been slowly... Uh, Made safer, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's now got FIA crash fencing. They've taken some of the bumps out. They've taken some of the crests and just rounded them off. None of that applies here. It's, he's also doing it during a tourist session. So rather than being some great production where they close the track, they film it, they retape bits, this is just a very, very fast guy in a stupid 930 Turbo going out for a lap, overtaking motorbikes, overtaking other cars. He can't take the line he wants in some corners because there's a car in the way going incredibly slowly in comparison. The closing and speeds are just insane, but the thing... Bonkers. I, the thing I love about this movie, this clip, however you want to call it, is that he's bullying a car that is known to be a bit of an animal in the wrong mm. hands. You know, it is 500 plus horsepower in a mid-80s 911 turbo with the engine hanging over the rear. It doesn't have modern tyre technology. doesn't have modern damper technology. And he's just... Manual box. Manual box. He's just beasting it around the track. He's deliberately mm. provoking it into massive tyre-shredding drifts around corners that you just you scare the pants off you under normal circumstances when you're driving normally and mm. much slower. He's bossing it around there and it looks effortless. It's actually interesting. The more you watch it, and I've watched it God knows how many times, you can see at different points in the track he's dealing with understeer, oversteer intentionally, oversteer unintentionally. But even on, on the brakes, it's so unstable. It, it's twitching this way and that and he's having to manage the whole car. My God, he has some of the fastest hands I have ever seen. And yeah, slow. It's going to be a slow steering rack on that thing either. It's not going to be hyper twitchy oh, yeah. or anything like that. It, it's, it's properly. I, I'm, I'm giving it the full racing driver arms. You can't see it great for radio. It. But the yes. thing about this is, this is one of two videos that were the original viral videos. It's the Roof Fascination video and Sit Down Rendezvous. Um, mm from Claude Lelouch, which was that drive through Paris early one morning that was maybe in a Ferrari, but actually not. It was in a Mercedes <laughs> with a Ferrari overdubbed. But they were viral videos before there was an internet available mm -hmm. to watch these things. And you got them on old copies of VHS and you heard about them through the grapevine or you read about them in car magazines. And I can remember the first time I saw this, I don't think I really appreciated how terrifying the ring was and how skilled the driver was until I went and drove a lap for myself and you know the elevation changes the other drivers the blind crests the fact that if you're new to the ring you've got no idea what's coming around the next corner <laughs> it's a demonstration of the art of driving mm -hmm. and 
you're not going to see anything better. I don't think there are many ring laps to better it. Maybe the Kevin Estre lap in the GT3 RS um, yep. for me is one of my favourite onboards of, and, and laps of the ring. But for just sheer cool and raw driving ability in a car that could bite at any second, you mm. can't beat the fascination. It's interesting if you watch this and the 919 Evo video, they're both shocking in entirely different ways. Yeah, the 919, both... the 919 lap is shocking because just the sheer pace of it appears <laughs> like it, the world has been put on fast forward. <laughs> it is one of my favourites, and I, there was a story, and I want to say Steve Sutcliffe from Autocar said that they tried to do a recreation of it and basically scared themselves so silly in about a quarter of the lap that they just said, we've either got to stop or somebody's going to end up seriously hurt and we're going to smear the car down half a kilometre of, uh, of Armco. So That's quite it's, telling. It's quite telling that no one has gone with a, a similar kind of retro mod car and tried to do the same thing. <laughs> Even on a closed track now, the kind of laps you're seeing, you know, Vaughan Gissing Jr. and his 800 brake horsepower Mustang, I want to say, you know, that was closed track, many laps. It's still hugely impressive. He's carrying massive speed into a course that I'm presuming he doesn't know that well. Um, But there's nothing, no one's gone back and gone, hey, I've got a Singer 911 and I'm going to do Fascination 2. Even (laughs) Roof themselves have not done it. I think there is a video out there of them doing laps in a 996 um, roof with yellow paint on it but it's nowhere Mm. near the same level of commitment and skill possibly because Porsche turbos have now become the ultimate point to point pace car they're four wheel drive they're traction control they're stability control and Mm. to make it do the kind of things that the Yellowbird was doing would involve massive modification and even more insane speeds to get it to unstick I, I, and also, Roof have nothing to gain. They have that video. Anything would fail to live up to it. And even the Vaughan Gittings Jr. video, which I, I, I will probably put a link somewhere in a future episode to some of the behind-the-scenes vlogs that were filmed at the time uh, that was filmed. It, it, they, they weren't over many, many laps. They were a section at a time. So he would literally do hats and back and do it until they get it right, and do it so they get the tracking shot, and do it so they get the coverage, and then they move on to the next bit, and then they move on to the next bit. So even that's not complete laps. That's not one thing, and there's certainly no other traffic. But this is, I think this is what now, 30 years old? Still holds up, still well worth the watch. Whether you've seen it 100 times before, or whether you've never seen it before, please go give it a watch. Let us know what you think. Especially if you've never seen it before, because it is ground zero for Nürburgring laps. Right, well, that's that's it for this episode. If you think we got it right or got it wrong about the BMW films or any of the clips we've talked about here, then share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at, at AutomoviePod or on our Automovie Podcast Facebook page, or you can email us at comments at automoviepodcast.com. And if you are in America and have been watching Hyperdrive, then I can only apologise for the useless brummy.